Hi, this is Joel Salatin. Welcome to the Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Hello, hello, all you purveyors of the probiotic life. I've got a great interview for you today. And I was really excited to interview this man. He is a farmer. And if you clicked on this episode, you probably already know who he is. But if you don't, you're in for a real treat today. His name is Joel Salatin. He is a legend in my books, and um, I was a little bit starstruck talking to him. But nevertheless, uh, we have a great conversation about carbon farming, about um, regenerative agriculture, the way that he does regenerative agriculture on his farm. And at the end, we go into a little bit about how us urbanites can do our bit uh, in the carbon sequestration cycle. So we're going to get right into it, but just want to encourage you, if you like what's going on in this podcast, give us a like on Facebook, a rating and review on iTunes, uh, give us a follow on Instagram and get the word out there because I believe that this is a way that we can connect back with nature, take control of our health and build healthy communities around us. So if you share this vision, if you want to create life wherever you are and wherever you're going, then come participate in the conversation and connect in with the probiotic life. Give us some feedback. So without further ado, here is the interview with Joel Salatin. Our guest today is a farmer from Swoop, Virginia, USA. His farm is Polyface Farm. He's not just a farmer though, as if that didn't keep him busy enough, he's also a prolific writer and speaker. Some call him the most famous farmer in the world. Some call him a charlatan and a heretic. He calls himself a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer. Welcome to the show, Joel Salatin. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you, Ben. Um, and thanks for your time. Uh, wh- what are you up to today there at Polyface Farms? Yeah, well, we had some snow today. <laughs> uh, so I've, um, I've been out to move some cows. We're still, we're still grazing uh, a fair amount. So uh, I moved some cows, but uh, most of the day I've been in... Uh, Working at the desk, trying to take advantage of a snowy day to catch up on desk work. We 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 have a lot of that too. For sure, it sounds like uh, the states have been uh, in a bit of a cold snap recently. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, it's it, and it's been it's it's uh, gone very far south as well. So um, you know, for you, you know, imagine imagine if uh, if Queensland. Um, if Queensland got a foot of snow, uh, that's what we've got here with, um, you know, Alabama and down in southern U.S. getting snow. It's, it's, quite, it's quite unusual. That's crazy. Well, um, some may put it down to uh, climate change, but um, I think the, the, the point is that what we can do is uh, we can actually do something about um, – holding carbon in the soil. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you today about because the probiotic life is about reconnecting with nature. And um, so we wanted to get a perspective 
from a farmer and someone who's very outspoken in this field. Uh, that's wonderful, and that's that's really what you know what we do here. And um, glad to glad to explain how we sequester carbon. There there's numerous threads uh, threads that we use to do that, but um, you know mainline agriculture is all about using up the carbon in the soil and depleting the carbon in the soil. That's been the that's been the normal trajectory of uh, you know of agriculture throughout history. Uh, very very seldom does agriculture actually um, you know make that trajectory go toward a positive carbon sink. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what, that's, but that's what we need to be doing. That's for sure. That's right. Um, that that's part of my mission here as well at the Probiotic Life. But before we get into that, uh, would you just uh, share with us a little bit about? Uh, where, how you came to be, where you are, where where you grew up, and um, maybe any key defining moments of uh, that that really um, cemented the way that you think about these things. Sure. Well, we're we're in Virginia, which is on the east coast of the United States, and we're in the mountains, uh, so we're not down by the ocean. We're we're in, inland from there, so um, we're at. 18, the, the farm is uh, at 1,800 feet is the house, but some of the land goes up as high as 2,800 feet. So we have 1,000, which would be, uh, what, 300, 330 meters of elevation difference um, on, on the farm, which is more elevation difference than the entire, <laughs> uh, the entire country of Australia almost. Pretty much. We do. We do. And, uh, changes. So when when our family came, I was just four in 1961. When we came here, mom and dad uh, dad was an accountant. Mom was a school teacher, and uh, came to the farm. Bought it in 1961. Um, over the next ten years, using outside income, paid for it. But my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine when it came out in about. 1949, and he had compost piles and didn't use any chemicals and herbicides and, and had this, this very large um, produce uh, garden. He had, he had chickens as well, bramble fruits, uh, grape vines, uh, and, and, and it was that early uh, sense of abundance there at his place that, looking back, was so... Uh, foundational to my desire to participate in in, in abundance, um, and I don't want to get too esoteric with you, but but uh, you know when we came to this farm, it was in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, uh, where it had been cropped, you know, plowed and cropped for almost two hundred years before we came. There was so little soil left that. We couldn't. We didn't have enough soil to hold up electric fence stakes, so Dad poured concrete in uh, used car tires to make, you know, uh, uh, support structure, and, and he put uh, half-inch pipe down in the concrete. And my brother and I, you know, he was three years older than I. We were little kids, you know, six and seven, eight, nine years old, and um, the two of us could could tip these concrete tires out on the field as dad drove slowly along and he'd go along and put electric fence stakes in them. And that, because there, there was so little soil, we had all these big bare rock areas that didn't have enough soil to hold up electric fence stakes. And that's how we built electric fence in those early days. And, and, uh, dad very early got on to the, uh, the, the managed grazing kind of idea, the, the, the urban, the, the migratory, uh, choreography of herbivorous popu- um, populations using electric fence. Now, electric fence, you know, was in its infancy in that day, but nonetheless, we were able to to start down that path, and um, and so you know, it was a great place to grow up, and 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 so to contrast our farm with its rocks and its weeds, and and you know, it, it just it just was so. I mean, it was uh, gullies. We had gullies 16 feet deep. Um, 
And to see that erosion and devastation on our farm compared to my grandfather's, you know, vibrant, uh, uh, highly abundant, productive, large, you know, like quarter-acre garden was quite a contrast. And and so as we started down this path, um, we started seeing the land heal, the vegetation got thicker, uh, you know, the, the, the denuded areas were starting to get vegetation on them. And um, and so then to be able to grow up and see that I could actually have a hand in in healing and restoring abundance um, that was a you know that was an awakening thing that developed through my teen years so that you know by the time I was a, a teenager I just I really wanted to be able to participate. In that kind of a, in that kind of a, a, a whatever, a ministry, a, a project, you know, to that I could actually caress, you know, caress the the ecological womb, and and this womb actually wants to provide abundance. You know, we live in a time when many people think that nature's default position is scarcity and sickness. And and my belief is that nature's default position is abundance and wellness, mm-hmm. and and those are two extremely different, um, you know, whatever worldviews, ways to look at things. And so where the where so many people are are working with the land and with nature like it's some sort of a reluctant. A reluctant partner, partner that they have to dominate and 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 make you know get in a half Nelson wrestling choke and I'm going to make you produce this crop or you know do this thing for me in, in a in a uh, a very uh, a, conqu- a conquistador mentality. Instead, here we view it as actually a benevolent nature is a benevolent partner, a benevolent lover, if you will. And so our uh, our mandate is to humbly come and say, "How do I how do I caress you? How do I massage you, so that you will do what you want to do the best way you can do it?" And those are two very different ways of looking at life and nature and our you know our our, our ecological uh, bath. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating, Joel. Like you talking about. Uh, you painted a picture of when you got to your farm uh, uh, as a young child, and in terms of vitality, it sounded like it's the it was the bottom of the barrel. But you you had a picture in your mind of what it could be like of of abundance, and um, through that developing of that mindset, you've actually been able to create that around you, create that life around you. You know that. That the our farm was the armpit of the community, you know, it was, it was uh, in rough shape. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why Dad and Mom bought it was because it was cheap. It was cheap because everybody had given up on it. And um, and so yes, now today here we are, you know, sixty years later almost, and arguably it's the most verdant, uh, productive farm in the whole region. Um, that's not proud to say that. That's not. Um, you know, uh, pride. It's it's simply accentuating or, or affirming. It's affirming this template that nature has. That if it's properly respected and leveraged and massaged, it will function. Because this has been done without you know chemical fertilizers. It's been done without pesticides, herbicides, insecticides. It's been done without without really even. Uh, planting any seeds, um, and and so uh, it's quite you know, it's quite dramatic, quite marvelous. That's amazing. Um, you know, when I first heard some of your talks, Joel, this was a, a big revelation to me uh, between uh, what you were saying and people like Dr. Elaine Ingham, um, who we've had on the podcast as well. There's actually a different way of of doing things than, than what we, uh, know in, in this time and age. Well, yes, Uh, you have to realize that, 
um, our the what I call the orthodoxy. The orthodoxy of our age is that life is fundamentally mechanical, and uh, and so the when we look at animals and plants, what we see are essentially machines, and uh, so we can. So, so we're, we manipulate those as machines. We we think about giving them giving them fuel like gasoline in a car, you know. And so we're talking about how do we feed the plants, and we talk about plant food, and and and, and as if it's some sort of a big uh, intravenous uh, thing that we're pouring in, you know, chemical fertilizer and additives, uh, oil and gas and whatever, and 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 the engine runs, you know, that sort of thing. And, and 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 those are the kind, and of course animals are in you know confinement facilities um, where nobody's asking the question uh, how do we how do we make a happy chicken how do we make a happy pig and the only question is can we grow this protein we don't even call them animals anymore we call them protein uh, can we grow this protein faster fatter bigger and cheaper uh, again it's it's an extremely um, uh, inanimate, materialistic, uh, dispassionate view uh, toward life. And so what Elaine Ingham and, and, and I and, and plenty of others in, in this, this alternative uh, uh, paradigm, what we view life or, or biology uh, is as fundamentally um, living, that, that life is fundamentally biological and not mechanical. And there's a big difference, you know. Uh, machines. If if a wheel bearing goes out in your in your front right wheel of your car, you can apologize to it. You can you can give it rest time. You can uh, you know you can even put oil on it. You can do all sorts of things. But if it's damaged, it does not get better. It it's damaged and it's done. It'll still go thump thump thump, no matter what you do. But living things, biological things can heal and and they have a you know, they have a built-in desire for resilience and uh and 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 a uh, you know a sentient aspect to where they're responding they're responding to things all around them and of course you know Elaine Ingham is the guru the guru of the world on this whole what I call the she calls it the soil food web. I like to um, to jazz it up a little bit and call it the underground cafe. <laughs> uh, and I envision, you know, Star, Star Wars. Remember when uh, when Hans uh, when uh, Luke Skywalker goes to that cafe to find uh, Han Solo to find this fast ship, right? And um, and you got all those you know weird you know creatures playing the saxophone and all the flugelphone or whatever, you know, and all this stuff. And and so underground, underground are all of these weird-looking, weird-shaped um, beings that are trading. You know, one comes up and says, "Hey, I've got I've got two uh, two units of boron here. I'll I'll trade them to the plant for a little bit of a little bit of that sugar, that polysaccharide that the plant made out of the you know uh, sunlight that it digested today." And, and and this trading is going on underneath the ground, you know, billions and billions and billions of little commercial transactions a, a day as these as these beings are, are interacting in this uh, cafe, and you know, that's that's not mechanical, you know, mm-hmm. it's not mechanical, and and when we start viewing life as fundamentally biological as opposed to mechanical, uh, it. It, it, it fundamentally changes the way we, not only the way we view life, but the way we interact with life. So we start asking questions about respecting and honoring, for example, the pigness of pigs. Does it matter if we, if we respect and honor the pigness of pigs? And we ask questions like, can we make pigs happier? Can we make tomato plants happier? Uh, what's a, what, is, what is a habitat that allows this, this being uh, to fully express its physiological distinctiveness, and what we learn pretty quickly is that the that the habitat that we create, you know, um, um, Antoine Beauchamp, the, the Frenchman, the contemporary of Louis Pasteur, 
who uh, Pasteur, of course, advanced the germ theory. Said, "See all those little bugs in there? We got to we got to kill them. They're the problem." And Beauchamp, um, who was a contemporary, uh, said, "Well, yeah, I see all those bugs, but what makes what makes some of those bugs win and some lose?" And uh, he advanced, of course, the terrain theory that it's that it's not actually the germs or the viruses or the bugs themselves. It's actually the terrain that we create to um, allow them to allow the, the the good bugs to be overcome by the bad bugs. Actually, what you know, ninety five percent of all bugs are good; only five percent are bad. And so, the default position of nature is fundamental wellness. And so, when we take a mechanical view to life, and something gets sick. We assume well, we had we put in bad gas, we put in bad oil, we we got a bad part, we you know, and so when a cow gets sick on most people's farms, their first thought is, oh, I apparently didn't use the right vaccine, the right drug, the right whatever. Mm-hmm. On our farm, when a cow gets sick, our first question is, what did we do to um, to impair the immunological terrain that allowed the good that allowed the bad bugs to beat the good bugs. That's that's the fundamental question, and that's uh, so different from um, from well, at least what I was exposed to growing up. I, I wasn't raised on a farm or anything, but uh, you know, sometimes I, I feel a bit hopeless when I watch uh, a documentary and they talk about like everything is out to kill and destroy everything else like this could be fatal and sometimes i just turn off the audio and i'll put it on my own music and and watch what i see is um the glory of creation just um through a different lens just by listening to something different so where where did we get this idea of um mechanical and like everything is fatal where where do you think that came from uh, well, I, I mean, boy, I, I don't, I don't have all those. I don't have all those answers, um, but I do think. I, I mean, it, it came on slowly. I mean, uh, certainly the the seeds of it. If you want to go back to one single event, where you know what what changed this. I mean, it, at least back in the, you know, in the fifteen and sixteen six fourteen hundreds. At least back in those days, they might not have understood germs or viruses. They actually called them spirits and all that stuff. But, but at least they didn't have a mechanical view. They might have had a, a spiritual, maybe even an animist view or, or whatever uh, toward life. But, but, but they, they, they definitely um, viewed a whatever a, a divine and a and something. They, they viewed life differently than mechanical. And I think if there's if there's one time when that really really changed. Uh, in agriculture, it was with uh, Justice von Liebig, the Austrian chemist, who in 1837, um, using vacuum tubes, presented to the world the notion that all life, all life, plants, animals, everything else, all life is simply a different relationship between nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Those were the only three um, uh, compounds or, or elements that he was able to isolate in in the uh, the plants in his uh, vacuum tubes, and you know, bless his heart, he was looking he was looking for a cure to you know to fertility problems to, to soil fertility. That, that's what he was looking for a cure to. But what he presented the answer um, was an extremely mechanical answer to a biological problem. And that sent the whole, you know, Western world um, down this path of, well, if we can just supply nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, doesn't matter whether it's living or not living. Uh, if we can supply that, then, you know, th- then we're good to go. And, uh, and that obviously, as, as the chemistry, the science, and all that, you know, developed, it, it, did, it, it got you know, more and more ubiquitous in the system and got its big, uh, you know, catalyst during the two world wars uh, because explosives, explosives are made out of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And so what Justice, Justice von Liebig did 
for agriculture, the war effort of World War One and Two, the war effort um, uh, took the the mining and the you know the uh, the chemistry, the marketing, the bagging, the the distribution logistics um, of of this elemental N P and K to another level, so that by the time World War II was over, we had these, you know, uh, uh, this entire infrastructure, infrastructure distribution mining system to cheaply make nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and uh, you know, and and this came to agriculture in a you know pretty massive way uh, following World War II, which is why things have changed so dramatically. What's what's fascinating to me is that. In 1943, right in the middle of World War II, is when um, Sir Albert Howard, the godfather of modern scientific composting, uh, released his iconic book, um, kind of viewed as the start of of kind of sustainable agriculture, um, an an agricultural testament, an agricultural testament where he um, explains the aerobic composting method from a scientific standpoint. And um, and my favorite uh, line from the book is that he says, this is 1943, he says, he called uh, chemical fertilizers artificial, artificial fertilizers. He says, when we use artificial fertilizers, they grow artificial plants which make artificial animals which feed artificial people who can only be uh, uh, kept alive by using artificials. Mm, isn't that interesting? Well, it, 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 if that wasn't prophetic about our current, you know, pharmaceutical and uh, uh, industry, I don't know. I don't know what is. Hmm. So you know how we got here. You know, it's uh, it's uh, obviously a, a progression of numerous things, but I, I think that the 1837 Justice von Liebig uh, experiment, you know, uh, that's. I mean, you know, he he didn't know about actinomycetes and mycorrhizae and, and you know and and all the the millions and millions of, of things that Elaine Ingham uh, talks about, or um, or um, you know the other you know living soil folks. He he did he didn't understand all that. Didn't understand the intricacies of this. He was mm-hmm. he simply he simply saw what was obvious and what he could see at the day. And immediately jumped to the conclusion. Well, you know, this is it. And like like you alluded to before, Joel, he, he was doing it out of uh, trying to help out of a uh, out of a good yes. heart, and and oh, a- he met a demand. Yeah, absolutely, no question. I no nowhere am I going to impute his motives or anything like that. Uh, but you and I both know now that the the intricacy of life and cell structure and, and all that is, well, every day we learn something, we realize there's, there's more we don't know. And so, you know, it's, it, I grew up, when I was a child, I remember this fascination with space. You know, we were on this space race. Um, you know, the Russians did the Sputnik, and and you know, and we raced to the moon, and all this stuff. Everything was about you know uh, uh, space, and, and everything was big, as big you know how big space is, and all this stuff. And it's interesting how in the last twenty years, it's almost like we've turned that on its head, and our fascination is with the little, and all the way down to nanotechnology. You know, where where every time we think we've found the smallest particle, there's another one smaller and another one smaller and another one smaller. And, um, and so it's just interesting how, we, how our, our awareness and understanding of things, what we, our knowledge, what we learn, um, you know, cycles between big and tiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let, let's take a bit of a journey down into the soil and, and down, um, you know, we've like I said, I talked to Dr. Laning, and we've talked to Dan Kittridge of the Bionutrient Food Association, sure. mm-hmm. and we've started to understand a little bit of um, what's actually happening in the soil in terms of the exchange between the microbes and the plants. But uh, what we haven't d- explored yet is 
what happens when with those plants and and uh, how we can use um, intensive grazing or, or managed grazing. So mm-hmm. can, can we talk a little bit about that, that, about what you actually do on your farm and maybe how has that developed? Sure, sure. Um, well, if you look at the, um, deep, the deepest soils on the planet, the best and the deepest soils on the planet, they aren't under forests and they aren't under bushes. They're under grasses. Now, those grasses might have, you know, might have trees scattered through them. This, is, this isn't just, um, um, you know, single species, but primarily um, grasses. Uh, grasses are more efficient at converting sunlight into biomass through photosynthesis than any other plant. Now, it seems counterintuitive because when you look at a, a forest, if you look at all that carbon, uh, the biomass in those trees, you say, wow, look at all that biomass. But you got to realize that what you're looking at is a biomass that's accumulated over 40, 50, 60 years. So if you took, if you took for example, let's just take a lawn, for example, and you took your lawn clippings from a square yard and put, were able to put them in a bag and uh, store them for 60 years, and then you, were, you could take that bag and put it on that square yard again so you could see 60 years' worth of, of biomass production on that square yard, very quickly you would, it would make a believer out of you to realize, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, the grass is way more product, way, way more uh, uh, biomass producing per square yard mm-hmm. than, than trees. Part of the reason is because it has a much, much higher, faster metabolism. You know, it, it, it doesn't take years and years and years to grow slowly and then finally die. It, it, it grows and dies it, uh, in, in sometimes twice a season, you know. It's, it's extremely rapid. And so um, the reason for the herbivore is because this fast grass metabolism where it starts it sprouts it's green and then it and then it slows down into senescence turns brown and 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 dies the reason for the herbivore is to prune to prune the senescent plants back so that they so that they can restart their rapid growth accumulation it's like like pruning an orchard or pruning a vineyard you know nobody views pruning an orchard or pruning a vineyard as as damaging to the plant, uh, it's actually uh, stimulating to the plant. It makes the plant grow new, verdant, you know, succulent growth, and, um, and and become actually more prolific than it would if it were just left to its own interests. And so, the so the the herbivore, the job of the herbivore and the role of the herbivore, and why there's so many of them all over the planet. I mean, from you know zebras to guinea pigs, is that this this biomass needs to be pruned in order to stimulate to, to make room and to stimulate the plant to uh, re-sprout and go back into a green you know a green uh, uh, biomass production cycle. So so how does how does nature do that? Well, nature does that not with uh, you know feedlots and confinement operations. It does it with migratory choreographies um, stimulated by seasons, stimulated by rain cycles, and, um, and, and encouraged by predator-prey relationships. The, the whole predator-prey pred, predator keeps these herbivores moving across the landscape. And so th- this movement across the landscape is what en- enables this pruning to happen in a systematic fashion um, in general, you know, as the plants reach their maturity state. So that's the way nature works. That's the way nature builds soil. That's the way carbon sequestration happens in nature. Obviously, on a farm situation, we can't have a migratory choreography because the neighbor doesn't want our animals on his place. We don't want his on our place. They can't go from one end of the country to the other because there are shopping malls and expressways and Starbucks in between. And so 
So how do we duplicate this this movement, predator-prey, migratory choreography on a, on a domestic parcel that's owned by somebody? So we do it with electric fence. And ele- or, or, you know, you can do it as a shepherd or a herdsman, a, a nomadic thing. That was historically the way to do it. Today, we can do it much more precisely and aggressively with electric fence. It's very, very cheap, very effective. And so now with electric fence, we can essentially put a, a steering wheel, a, uh, a, a, a steering wheel, a gas pedal, <laughs> and a brake on that four-legged pruner and steer a, a herd of pruners, whether it's cows, sheep, around the landscape uh, as precisely as we would a zero-turn mower on a golf course. That's the first time in human history we've been able to do that. Now, we have, we have a supporting cast to make this happen. One is portable shade, and we now have uh, you know, the ability to make very cheap, inexpensive, um, large-scale portable shade using nursery shade cloth, horticultural uh, spun, you know, woven poly uh, shade cloth on, on essentially tink, tinker toy, you know, tinker toy uh, superstructures on, you know, chassis. And then the other partner is, um, is water. So they got to have shelter, water, and control. And the water, of course, has been enabled now with, you know, polyethylene pipe. So we can, you know, bury water lines very, very cheaply with a subsoiler, and we can deliver water. So now we're not locked into this herd drinking only out of a spring or a stream or a river. Uh, we, we can send water to every, you know, square corner of an area, and we can simulate. That way we can simulate the migratory choreography and the predator-prey relationship in this pruning. We can simulate what happens in nature and we can do it on a, you know, on a, uh, a small-scale farm. And that's pretty cool. So we call this, this mob-stocking or herbivorous solar conversion lignified carbon sequestration fertilization. That's amazing, Joel. That, that, to me, that's, that's taking um, the natural cycles and observing natural cycles sort of like in permaculture and using yes. the technology that we have just to guide it gently this way and that way rather than stopping it dead in its tracks. Yes, yes. And, and what happens over as we, as we begin um, tapping into this, this natural template, if you will, or this natural pattern, um, the land starts to, guess what? It starts to come alive because uh, you get this, this mob stocking, you get you get um, you know herd impact kind of Im- impaction one day, and then it rests for fifty, a hundred, one hundred and fifty days or two hundred days, a long time, and then you come back and you you mob it again, and this this simulates that uh, we call it the pulsing of the pastures, like a big like a big heartbeat, a heartbeat, and and the the the, the ecology is pulsing with rest. And exercise, mm. rest, and exercise. And on our farm over the past fifty years, for example, we have gone from um, a little less than one percent organic matter on average overall to more than eight percent organic matter. Now that's a anybody that knows anything about organic matter in the soil to go from one percent to eight percent is a uh, only thing that it's catastrophic I mean it's, it's huge um, especially when you realize that one pound of organic matter holds four pounds of water so when you go from one percent to two percent organic matter you've increased your water retentive capacity about fourfold so you're getting an exponential increase in water retentive capacity why is water retention so important? A, the soil life in the soil can't thrive unless it has moisture. The, these these actinomycetes, gibberellins, mycorrhizae, um, the, these all these protozoa, nematodes, bacteria, fungi, uh, they essentially live in a in a 
in a kind of a marsh. And if the marsh dries up, then they simply you know, go into a, a hibernative state and can't function. So you know, that's, that's one important aspect of water. And, of course, all this is then expressed by how long you know, grass will continue to grow and stay green. So the longer we can hold moisture, A, um, we don't get as much runoff, so more of, a, more of a rain when it does rain, the rain actually goes in the soil instead of running off. It's retained in the soil for much longer, so we get a far more residual effect. All of this organic matter, soil building, biomass accumulation, moisture retention, all of this reverses desertification. And, um, you know, one of the, I mean, I've been to Australia now, what, 10, 10 times? I'm going back, actually going back in April to Queensland to do a couple of uh, seminars. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I've learned so much from Australia. You know, I mean, Australia has brought perhaps the most cutting-edge, innovative landscape design to the world. I mean, P.A. Yeomans in the 1940s with Water for Every Farm. Then you had Bill Mollison and Dave Holmgren with, um, you know, with permaculture. Uh, we've got the key line designs. We've got, uh, you know, uh, Darren Dougherty with the Regrarians. I mean, the, 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 the most cutting-edge, innovative land-healing technologies in the world have come out of Australia. Colin Seitz with pasture cropping. You know, why, are all, why is Australia on the cutting edge of this? I think there are two reasons. One is Australia is arguably one of the most brittle environments in the world, fragile, brittle environments. And so it's natural that where people are hungriest or, you know, where the ecology is stressed the most, there would be the greatest, uh, um, you know, uh, desire to innovate and try to solve problems. Number, so so, so it's, it's a very fragile, uh, critical environment. And, uh, uh, number two, Australia, unlike some of the other critical environments in, you know, in sub-Sahara and in India and, 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 other, and, and the Gobi Desert, you know, in, in China and Mongolia, um, unlike those, Australia has the highest per capita income of any country in the world. And so you, you couple this with severe severe ecological stress with unparalleled uh, capital wealth. And what you have is the ability to actually, to not just look on this stress with despair, but actually bring to bear some different techniques that, okay, so they might cost a little bit, but at least you have some, some capital wherewithal to do some experimenting and to do some uh, you know some innovative things in the area. So, um, you know, I have I have great appreciation and respect for you know for these uh, innovative things that have come out of Australia. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm so excited about the different technologies um, around the world, but in Australia as well. Um, I don't know if you've got a chance to come to Western Australia, but it is it is a sparsely populated. Landscape about a million square kilometers with about two million um, people in the entire state, and so we have an opportunity to to do restoration on a big scale. You know, our our primary industry is um, mining, but closely after that, we you know we do wheat and sheep. So so there's that opportunity there, and I see Perth as even though it's so isolated. It could. I, I have a vision for it to be one of the most um, sustainable, regenerative cities in the world because we have all these technologies here. Because we have all these, um, we're we're forced to do that. I, I don't know if you know, but WI is actually one of, if not the most um, highest level of biosecurity in the world. We don't allow. Uh, seeds or anything to be imported into Australia. So if you want to sell seeds, great to sell them from Western Australia, but don't try and bring things like that in. <laughs> yeah, well, there's even a there's even a big uh, a fence to keep rabbits out, isn't there? There is. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so um, 
let's just let's take it a bit. We've we've learnt a bit a bit about the the soil. We've l- learnt a little bit about the um, the way that the animals move through the system. Tell me, how exactly have you developed that on your um, on your farms? I know that there's um, not just um, cattle um, on the farms. How, tell tell me a bit about that right. that ballet. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks for asking the question. It's yeah. This is not just uh, a, a single species kind of thing. So again, looking at nature as template, what do we see in nature? Well, we see a tremendous amount of of um, complex relationships among species, not only animals and animals and plants and plants, but animals and plants. And so um, so what we've done is, uh, first of all, we've built, we've built numerous ponds, uh, permaculture style, up on high ground. So we have uh, several miles, uh, goodness, uh, probably 15 kilometers. I've always got to think about kilometers for Australians. Mm-hmm. Um, probably 15 kilometers of water line around the farm that gravity feeds from high ponds. I mentioned the elevation on our farm, so we've put put ponds up on some high ground, and then we gravity feed that water down. So that gives us water everywhere. We move the cows every day. Well, again, we look at nature and say, well, you know, before Merck Pharmaceuticals and Pfizer came along, how does nature handle the, the dung and the parasites and, and, and the grubs and things, uh, the pathogens for herbivores. And what we see are birds. Birds follow, birds follow herbivores in nature. And so we have eggmobiles uh, that are just um, portable chicken houses. Uh, we can put, you know, anywhere from 500 to 800 uh, laying hens there, and we move them about three days behind the cows so that right when the larva, right before the fly larva uh, hatch in the cow patties, the, the chickens come in. So we don't want to move the chickens right behind the cows because the larvae aren't big enough and fat enough. The larvae are what pays the salary. They're what pays the salary for the chickens to scratch through the cow patties and spread them out um, on the ground to increase fertilization and to pick out all the larvae and sanitize the paddock behind the cows. So, uh, of course, the cows, as they graze, they've explored the cows and the sheep. They've exposed the grasshoppers and crickets and all that insect life. And the chickens, of course, can now pick all that up as well. The chickens then take all that, all that bugs and, and, and larvae and everything, convert that into eggs, which we then now have a product to sell, uh, another product to sell. So now we're getting two products off that pasture. So that's this this symbiosis between the herbivore and the bird. We also raise meat chickens, and they're in floorless field shelters that we move every day across the pasture to a fresh spot. The field shelters protect them from predators, both aerial and and terrestrial. And they get a totally fresh, what we call a fresh salad bar every day. They, they, they get a clean place to lounge away from yesterday's excrement. And so it's an extremely hygienic, sanitary uh, situation. And we move them every day, and then we process them, of course, right on the farm as well. Um, the, the pigs uh, are moved every couple of days from paddock to paddock, same idea. And um, the most interesting thing on the pigs probably is that in the wintertime, now we, of course, have much harsher winters. We usually have a couple of feet of snow, and it, it gets cold enough to freeze freeze uh, ponds, or, or uh, like you call them there in Australia, dams. And, um, in fact, the last couple of weeks we've been, we've been ice skating on the, on the uh, dams. So uh, it gets a lot colder here. Well, anyway, when we run out of, uh, out of forage outside, then we feed hay. We feed hay in a in a just a shed a, a, a roofed shed and um, we chip diseased fallen dead uh, crooked um, weedy poor species invasives whatever uh, trees and um, that becomes a carbon base for bedding in this hay shed under the cows in the winter 
and uh, we add corn to that bedding, and the corn ferments in the anaerobic bedding pack because the cows are tromping out the oxygen, and that bedding pack will build up deeper than a meter, a meter deep. The cows come back out in the spring to begin graze again. We put pigs in there. Pigs then seek that fermented corn that's that's um, in the in that deep bedding pack, and in doing so, they churn it all up like a great big egg beater on a big blender and inject oxygen and convert it from anaerobic to aerobic compost. And when that's done, then of course, then that goes back out on the fields as our fer- as our fertilizer. So. Um, so the compost becomes our entire fertility package. And so you have this, what we call the ballet in the pasture. Uh, you know, we raise turkeys as well. Turkeys are also in, in portable electric net fencing that we move every couple of days along the pasture. So you might look at one field and there will be cows, turkeys, meat chickens, and laying chickens all you know, in the in the pasture, occupying at different times, at different places. Um, you know, moving through that pasture in a in a in a year, and um, and so the combination of all of these not only greatly increases the income per acre, but it also greatly increases the diversity, the diversity of life that's on that acre, and that each animal. Has a different ratio of of uh, nutrients in its manure, nutrients in its um, in its urine. Um, they they tend to eat different things. They excrete different things. They some have hooves, some have claws, some scratch, some push. You know, it's it's this it's this wonderful um, you know uh, uh, diverse. Movement across the landscape, which again approximates the kind of diverse movement that nature creates. You know, when we when we see uh, you know wild places. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it really sounds like it comes from the the basis of thinking that there is abundance, that there is actually enough for everyone. Yes. Well. Yeah. You know. Um, most. Most farmers, unfortunately, um, I don't know. How, I, I want to say this very respectfully because nobody loves um, nobody loves good farmers as much as I do. Um, but but many farmers are coming to it uh, are coming to their farms as if well, I I I can't get any more out of this. You know, it's uh, I, I work eighty hours a week, and um, and there's nothing more to get. Or nothing more to nothing nothing more that I can tease out of this, and um, and what I would encourage uh, farmers to realize is there's not a farm in the world, including ours, that is fully utilizing and leveraging the the resource base, and that doesn't mean using it up uh, like a you know, like a, a, a conquistador, but uh, but leveraging it where we're where we're actually leveraging it for for benefit uh, um, and so a lot of times this requires more people on the land more people to manage different enterprises it obviously involves different skill sets knowing more things uh, you know knowing more than just wheat uh, knowing animals knowing plants is more eclectic you know which which is intimidating because it's it's enjoyable to just know one thing and mm-hmm. not have to know a bunch of different things, and so to become a, you know, to become a uh, an eclectic uh, person can can sound pretty intimidating uh, to people, but you if if you rely on the symbiosis and synergy of these relational of these complex relationships. What happens is a lot of things that you currently worry about uh, become non-problems. In the average farm conference, 95% of the conference is talking about diseases and fungus and pathogens and problems. Um, when, you, 
when you change the when you change the paradigm to a more um, nature respectful nature patterned template, most of those problems just solve themselves through the the, the default by wellness, and and they just solve themselves. When people ask me, they are always asking me about you know diseases. What about this and that and the other? And I I always just have to throw up my hands and say, look. I, I don't know a lot about diseases. I mean, if, if everybody used the veterinarian as many times as we did, they'd be the there wouldn't be very many of them, and they'd be as poor as church mice. Now, I love veterinarians. I'm glad they exist. But um, but you know, if if things are healthy, we don't need them as often. And so, you know, we, what we do is we substitute we substitute management and 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 being proactively managing we substitute that kind of skill and knowledge for a reactive uh picking up the pieces uh a kind of knowledge that most of us are operating in mm-hmm. you know that sounds very similar to um uh, horticulture with integrated pest management you know actually yes. being being proactive and being um, you know I'm, I'm a big proponent of Korean natural farming and and interviewed a few people in Hawaii who who are doing it on a large scale um, one of them Chris Trump his family owns I believe it's 800 hectares um, and mostly macadamia and and they've in, implemented these low-cost um, Korean natural farming techniques where you're Applying mm-hmm. biology, ap- applying indigenous microorganisms, and the the whole fertilization re- regime or the whole maintenance re- regime, including um, all the labor, they've got it down to twenty seven dollars a hectare per year, which is you can't even buy a bag of fertilizer for that much. <laughs> yes, yes, Be- because because these systems. These systems become self-perpetuating. I think, I think that's the. Again, we're, we're back to this. We're back to this uh, degeneration versus regeneration. And um, when you know when your when your body is healthy, and all of your systems are in balance and they're working well, you, you don't you don't need to spend a lot of time. Uh, whatever you know, re- remediating remediating problems. It just you get up in the morning, you feel good, and and you go on about life. You know, it's a it's a very um, regenerating kind of system, and and uh, it doesn't have a lot of cost. It doesn't have a lot of day to day maintenance cost uh, uh, associated with it. But when things are out of balance, out of whack. And there's a healthy amount of pathogenicity, or you know, viral or, or whatever weakness in the system. Then finding crutches, the right crutches, propping things up. It's it, it's it's laborious. It's inefficient. It just um, and 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 it doesn't it doesn't uh, regenerate itself as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Joel, you you you've been able to travel the world and see the way that different people do farming and I assume see um, different cultures and mindsets and the way that people live in cities as well. For us city dwellers, how, how can we ab- apply these principles? How can we ab- apply this abundance principles but also just being reconnected with nature? Yeah, such a wonderful question, one of my favorite ones. And I have a, I have a standard three-part answer. So let's go down to three things. Um, number one is to get in your kitchen. And that sounds, oh my, we've just switched the whole topic, you know, to, to food. But um, ultimately, this farming thing is about food. Our, our whole landscape deal is about eating. And uh, so uh, the first thing is to become more aware of the food we're eating. Uh, how to prepare it, what good food smells like, tastes like, looks like, uh, and just to develop a, a skill level. You know, you, you can't Google experience. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so you, you have to get into it. You, the, the most common um, 
whatever uh, thought mistake I think that most people make, and I say this very you know respectfully, is well, I want everything to be good and perfect and, and healthy, but I don't want to have to make any changes. <laughs> and and you know there's the old proverb, you know, be the change you want to be. Um, I would simply say that that wherever we are in our food and farming system. Uh, it, what, whatever we do, whatever we think, wherever we are, is a is a physical manifestation of the decisions that we've made up until now. And so, if we're going to have a different outcome, a different trajectory, we're going to have to make some different decisions. And um, I think one of the places to start is to appreciate that we can't be this profoundly ignorant about life and this profoundly disconnected from something as intimately associated with our well-being as food and expect accountability and and integrity in the system we have to know something about it and so 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 get in your kitchen begin you know cooking and dicing and slicing and you know and 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 uh, start developing some experience and, and skill with food number 2 is to do something yourself um and and that can be anything from a um, you know a a food scrap worm bed under your you know a worm kit worm bed under your um, kitchen sink to you know a beehive on the roof to a garden to hanging you know hanging uh, uh, pots of tomato plants on the patio uh, to having you know throwing out the cat the dog the gerbil and the boa constrictor and putting in a uh, two chickens in your condominium, um, and, and the chickens will eat your kitchen scraps and give you wonderful eggs. And now we don't have any garbage, and we get wonderful eggs to boot. And if you have teenagers in the house, uh, chickens are the greatest role models in the world because they're the first animal up in the morning. They spend all day happily turning trash into treasure, and as soon as the sun begins to go down, they go to bed. <laughs> what better role model could there possibly be for teenagers? Yep. So, so, <laughs> so, so do you know? Do do something yourself, just to just to touch, just to viscerally, viscerally participate in the mystery and the awesomeness of life. That's number two. Number three is to. Um, to find, ferret out, whatever, um, locate your local food treasures. Um, you know, I've been to Perth several times, and uh, yeah, to, to Western Australia, and I know that there are some really, really wonderful integrity food producers. Uh, there's farmers markets. There are co-ops. There are uh, uh, CSAs, community supported agriculture uh, box schemes. There are individual, uh, you know, direct farm marketers. Um, there are all sorts of opportunities, and many, many, many of these are literally six clients away from. Oh, if I just had six clients, uh, you know, eight more clients, I could leave my town job and farm full time. Uh, many of them are that close, and so we need to appreciate that uh, we can we can invest in that kind of uh, of empowerment for our local integrity farmers and you know and, and increase this um, you know this nest this output of local food uh, in, in the in the big scheme of things um, a community that can't feed itself is highly vulnerable and um, for you know any anomaly in the system from energy energy problems to you know uh, work related you know the the offshoreman won't unload the ship to in fact you know pathogenicity from faraway places uh, that sit for a long time in storage there's there's nothing as safe or as secure as neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor food commerce. And, um, and so I encourage folks to, you know, turn off, the, turn off the TV, shut down the Netflix or whatever it is, you know, and take that, take one year of entertainment, recreational money and time 
and invest it finding your food chain, your food treasures in your community, and um, and you'll you'll never go back. So the three things: get in your kitchen, do something yourself, and search for your local food treasures. And those three things, and um, and that will change your life. Mm-hmm. And that ties in so well to the probiotic life, reconnecting with nature. Well, thank you so much, Joel Salatin, for um, taking the time to come on the podcast and um, and share a bit of your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight and a pleasure. Well, he's definitely a hero in my books. What did you guys think? Why don't you get on board and connect with us, share with us how you're living a probiotic life. Once again, give us a little bit of love, rate and review us on iTunes so that we can share this message, get this out there. And we can restore our health, we can restore our connection to nature, we can restore our communities, we can restore the ecosystem. So until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.